you have your Bible, turn with me to Judges chapter 7. It'll be on the screen behind me. It's in your bulletin. Uh, there's also a pew Bible probably located somewhere in front of you. Uh, you can grab that as well. But we've been studying the book of Judges. We're in the middle of our series. And we've been looking at, and we'll continue to see, uh, that Judges is about God's rebellious people. But at the same time, it's about God's relentless grace towards his people. Uh, and we'll see that again uh, as we study the life of Gideon uh, for one more week. The story, there's a reason for that. The story of Gideon, uh, it's only by a few verses, but it actually beats out Samson uh, as being the longest narrative in the book of Judges. And so we're gonna, going to spend one more week looking at Gideon. And we're going to see again that it's, this passage will show us something about ourselves. And it's going to show us something about the character and the goodness of God. So follow along with me as I read Judges chapter 7. I'm going to be looking at verses 1 through 21. And as I was getting into this this week, uh, I was just reminded, you know, kind of if you've grown up with this stuff, maybe you've been there too, you kind of just don't think about it. But as I was really thinking about this passage, it's pretty strange. And so you'll, you'll see it as we kind of work through it, a lot of strange things happening. And so uh, let me, I'll read it and then we'll pray. Uh, let's listen to God's word. Then Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. And then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. I'm sure that was a tremendous encouragement to Gideon. Verse 4, and the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water and I will test them for you there. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought up the people and so he brought the people down to the water and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water up with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands uh, to their mouth, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. And let all the others go, every man to his home. And so the people took provisions into their hands and their trumpets. And he set all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. That same night, the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant. and You shall hear what they say. And afterwards, your hand shall be strengthened to go against the camp. Then 
he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. And their camels were without number as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. He went down to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the 300 men into 300 companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch. And they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the 300 companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hand the torches and in their right hand the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. This is God's word. Let me pray and ask him to help us with this passage this morning. Let's pray. Father, uh, we do need your help with this passage. Would you help us to make sense of all the details and all the things that we see uh, going on in it? Would you come through your spirit and take this word and apply it to our hearts? And more than anything, um, as you show us ourselves in this passage, also show us your goodness and your grace and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. What would you consider this morning to be the most dangerous heresy in the church? What would you consider to be the most dangerous heresy in the church? And when I ask that question, the heresy I have in mind is not some bold and ugly heresy. The one I have in mind is rather subtle and very, very attractive. It seems so right... But I think it is the most dangerous heresy in the church. What is it? Well, it's the emphasis on what we do for God rather than what God has done for us. You might have heard it said this way. God helps those who help themselves. God helps those who help themselves. Several years ago, there was a study that was done And it was in Harper's Magazine, and the title of the article was The Christian Paradox. And the article states that 
that three quarters of all the Christians in America actually believe that the Bible taught God helps those who help themselves. Actually, the Bible teaches the complete opposite. The Bible teaches us that God helps the helpless. God helps those who are weak. God helps those who come to Him empty-handed, ready to receive His gift of grace. And so do you believe that this morning? Do you believe God helps the helpless? We might give lip service to that and say, yes, God helps the weak and the helpless, but the reality of our lives often show that we believe and live as if God is delivering us on our own efforts rather than delivering us by His grace alone. Think about it this way. Think about how confident you feel when you feel competent. For example, when things go well for you, and you have parenting success, or you get a good report on your child from school or students, uh, when that special someone asks you out on a date or is interested in you, or you have a job interview and it goes very well, or you make the team, or you get recognized at work, when those things happen in our lives, what, how do we react? We're in a better mood. We walk out with a little more confidence into the world and more pep in our step. And we know the opposite is also true, isn't it? When things aren't going well, or we're faced with something really difficult and we don't feel competent, then most of the time we don't feel confident as we move out into the world. We, on the other hand, are filled with stress and anxiety. And you know what? That type of thinking, it's very subtle, but that type of living actually reveals just how much we trust in our own ability. It reveals just how much we trust in our own efforts rather than in trusting in the Lord. And I think that is why we need over and over and over again in the book of Judges, we need the book of Judges because over and over it tells us that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. We're going to look at Judges chapter 7 this morning. And it might sound, the main idea is going to sound very, very familiar to us. You might even find yourself saying, wait a minute, didn't we cover this in Ehud? This kind of sounds very familiar to the story of Ehud. uh, And the main point of that being about weakness. And the answer, I will say, is a resounding yes. And, you know, I thought about, you know, do, do I need to even skip this passage? Because the message might be so similar, but God screams it throughout the pages of Scripture over and over again, and there's a reason for that. It's because we don't believe it. It must be really important if He wants us to hear it again. Judges chapter 7, God reminds us that He doesn't value strength, but He actually values weakness. See, if we're going to connect to God, we must understand weakness and we must be growing in humility. And so the main idea this morning in one word is weakness. We're going to look at why God makes such a big deal out of weakness. Secondly, how God responds to our weakness. And then thirdly, what He does with weakness. And so why, how, and what? So let's look at number one. What, uh, why God makes such a big deal out of weakness. Well, we saw last week that God raised up Gideon to fight against the Midianites. 
And so Gideon starts gathering his army of 32,000 soldiers, a decent-sized army, but not compared to the Midianites. How do we know? Well, in chapter 8, verse 10, we learn that the army of the Midianites was 135,000 men. And so in verse 2, God says, okay, 135,000 versus 32,000. And God looks at Gideon and says, we've got a problem. Your army's too big. You've got too many soldiers. Verse 3 He tells them to to announce, if anyone's afraid, you can go home. And 22,000 men leave immediately, and he's left with 10,000. Verse 4, Gideon, I hate to tell you this, but we've still got too many. So take your army uh, down in verse 5 and let them drink water. And I want you to separate them out by those who lap up water with their tongue like a dog. I want you to keep them... And I want you to send home the ones who kneel down to drink water. And that 10,000 goes down to 300. 300 lapped up water like a dog. There's been a lot of speculation about uh, the selection process here. But I agree with most commentators. Uh, Most commentators would agree that the object was to reduce Gideon's army to a force. Not of a particular kind. But it's all about the number. To a particular number. And you see that because the number 300 gets repeated a couple of times. And so God whittles down the army to 300 men versus 135,000 men. It would be like taking roughly this room and adding 100 people. And us going and fighting 135,000 people. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, Gideon at this point, surely he is saying, are you kidding me? Uh, We did the whole fleece thing, and I was finally getting comfortable with what you'd called me to do, and now you go and do something like this. And you could even say, it it looks like God just wants His people to be afraid and run for their lives all the time. So why would God dwindle the army down to 300? Well, we're not left to wonder. He tells us, verse 2 again, The main point of the passage, this is it. In order that Israel may not boast in anything, or say that they, uh, uh, not boast, saying that their own strength has saved them. And so what do we learn from this? What's the so what of this passage? Two things, I think. And the first thing, I think this shows us that God knows our hearts. God knows what what we're really like. And so he whittles down the army to prevent them from thinking that they had saved or rescued themselves. God wants them and he wants us to get in touch with our weakness so that we will always know that salvation is never earned. That it's never something of our own doing, but it's from beginning to end. Salvation in God's rescue in your life is all grace. And God knows our heart. He knows what we're like. He knows that in our heart of hearts, we're glory thieves. And the slightest opportunity for you and I to take credit for something and receive glory, we will take it. And God here is doing something what He has done throughout the whole book of Judges. He is showing us 
that the danger in our lives, the biggest spiritual danger for us, is not all the things outside these walls. That's what we instinctively think. Your greatest danger this morning is inside you. It is the pride inside your own heart. It is the belief that we can save ourselves. It's the belief that if things are going well for you this morning, that you've done that. That it's by your hand that things are going well. It's another way that God pushes against our pride. From beginning to end, it's grace. But this also teaches us that God knows what we need to grow. He knows what we need, and He also gives us what we need to grow. You know, the biggest problems in our lives are taking good things that God has given given us and wanting them and loving them too much. So much so that those things become idols to us and we start to worship them and look to those things rather than looking to God in order to save us and give us our worth. And oftentimes, it is only when God threatens those things or removes those things from our lives that we even turn to Him at all. And so what God often does is He strips us of our idols and the things we're trusting in more than Him so that we will turn and grow more deeply with Jesus. And that's exactly what we see in this passage. Think about the story. Gideon, just like us, would be tempted. We're thinking we got to put our confidence and security in the size of the army. And God says, oh no. And he dewittles almost every single one of them. He takes away and leaves 300. Why? So Gideon could trust and follow God in new and more deeper ways. And you know, God does the exact same thing in our lives. God strips us of the things that we're putting our trust in, and our security, and our confidence in. Students, He might take away a dating relationship that you're putting your confidence in. Or if you're putting your confidence and your security and your worth and success and achievements, then God might start taking that away because all of a sudden you don't make the grade. Or all of a sudden you don't do the things that you need to do in order to keep the scholarship. Or you go out for the position that you think you're a shoe in to get and you suddenly don't get it. Or maybe it's parenting. You get prideful. And you start saying, look at me. And you start putting your hope in all, and making all the right moves and doing all the right things. And then suddenly God throws a situation into your family that you can't fix. Now, why in the world would God do that? Why would God do such a thing? Well, He would do such a thing so that you would have nowhere else to turn but Jesus. He would do such a thing so that you would have no other cry than a cry for mercy. He would do such a thing so that you would start going to Him to get Him rather than going to Him to get things from Him. So what is God using this morning in your life to show you your weakness? 
What is God using to show you your weakness? And are you, here's the question, and whatever that is, are you annoyed by it? Or are you letting it, God use it in your life in order to drive you to Jesus? Secondly, how does God respond to our weakness? You remember our lasting images last week of Gideon. He was hiding. He was doubtful. He was fearful. In every step of the way, God says, I am with you. In the midst of his fragile faith, God met him in his weakness and doubt. And I love what we see here because we see it again. Verse 10, there's only one difference though. The difference is this time Gideon doesn't even have to ask. He doesn't even have to ask. He doesn't even have to admit that he has weak faith because God knows him. Just like he knows you this morning. Look at verse 9. He says, go down into the camp. And then I love verse 10. If you are afraid. Of course he's afraid. It's Gideon. Gideon's scared out of his mind. And he doesn't even ask. And God says, I'm going to reassure you. Go down into the camp. There will be someone that will speak. uh, And you listen to them. And that will give you the assurance. And he goes down and he... Uh, and he hears the soldiers talking. This is, and then he goes, this is the sword of Gideon. God has given the Midianites and all the camp into his hands. And Gideon's strength is, uh, his faith is strengthened. And then look at what he does. He worships. And you see, God is treating Gideon. They're in a relationship. Just like he's in a relationship with you if you believe in Jesus this morning. And we do this, if you think about it, in all of our relationships. Think about, I'm married to Susie. And what if I told Susie, the only time I told her that I loved her and showed her that was on our wedding day? Seriously. I mean, let's just say this afternoon she were to come to me and she would say, you know, you never tell me that you love me and you never show me that you love me. And let's just say I were to say, what? (laughs) I did 18 years ago. On our wedding day, I I told you and showed you then. You would look at me and say, that's messed up. That's crazy. Why? Because when we're in a relationship with people that we love, what do we do? We show them and we assure them over and over that we're with them and that we love them. God is the exact same. Just like Gideon. Just like Gideon, he needed repeated assurance that God loved him and was with him, and God in his goodness gives it to him, just like he gives it to you every step of the way. Think about the, uh, he fed him and the angel burned up Gideon's food. And he says, you're with me, oh, at last, oh Lord God, back in chapter 6. Then the whole fleece thing, not once but twice. Now through the Midianite soldier. It's easy for us to sit here this morning on this side of this passage and say, poor Gideon. He's such a weakling. He's so afraid. If I were where Gideon was, and if I were to see those things, my faith would be strong and I would never doubt God again. Are you kidding me? We're no different than Gideon, are we? Have we not seen God do some really amazing things in our lives? Have we not seen God show up in other people's lives that we're praying for? Maybe in our lives, 
and answer prayers and we look at God and we say, God, if you just give me the answer to this prayer, if you just provide this for me, I'll never doubt again. I'll be with you always to the end. And then the next trial, the next hard thing comes along and what? Where are you? Are you with me? And we're, we're filled with anxiety and stress once again. You see, just like Gideon, we need the reassurance, don't we? We need to know over and over and over, we struggle to believe that God loves us and is with us. We think, friends, that God's just tolerating us. God's not just tolerating you. God loves you. And He's good and He's patient. And just like with Gideon, He wants to reassure you this morning that He's with you. And that He hasn't left you. How does God reassure us? Well, there's probably more than this, but let me mention a couple. Well, first of all, He gives you His Holy Spirit. Remember, one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to testify with your God's Spirit, testifying with your spirit, that you are indeed a child of God and loved by God. The Holy Spirit makes Jesus more real to you so that you can actually, in a sense, feel God's arms around you. That's what the Spirit does. But also, God gives us as a reassurance of His love, He gives us this right here. He commands us to gather every week and to sing songs about His love for us. To get up and to hear from His Word and be reminded of how much He loves and cares for us. And then He brings us to the table And He gives us this good gift of a sacrament that we can see and feel and touch and that goes inside of us, that we eat and drink so that His love for us might be made more vivid and more real. He gives us people. Think about how the reassurance came. It came through a person in this passage. God gives you people in your life. Maybe it's your small group. Maybe uh, it's uh, someone in your family. Maybe it's a friend gives you people when you're struggling to hold on and it seems like you're hanging by a thread and your strength is failing, you have people that look at you and say, God has not left you. God loves you and He's with you. Do you have someone like that in your life? Someone who just simply preaches the good news to you, preaches the gospel to your heart when you need it most. We all need those people Because those are gifts from God to reassure us of His love. Thirdly, what God does with our weakness. Look at verses 16 through 20. I found this is when it gets a little crazy. Hard to figure out. God gathers His army of 300 men... And he divides them into thirds and he tells them to march into the camp with torches hidden in jars in one hand and trumpets in the other. And then they gather around and they're supposed to blow their trumpets and break the jars revealing the torches. And they're supposed to all shout a word for the Lord and a word, a sword for the Lord and a sword for Gideon. And here's my question. Do they attack No. Did you notice that? They just stand there. Verse 21. 
All they do is stand in their place and it just gets really hectic and they start, the Midianites start turning on themselves and start running and fleeing away. And here's the thing I want us to see. Think about the weapons of the Israelites. Lamps and trumpets and jars and all of the craziness. Those are not exactly cutting edge military weapons for battle. They're weak. And on the outside, I'm sure the Midianites looked and says, you can't hurt us. You've got a lamp and a trumpet and a jar. And all you're doing is shouting. You see, the same is true for God's people, isn't it? God's people, God's given us spiritual weapons, so to speak. Ephesians chapter 6. And on the outside, they look very weak because we've got this armor and defensive armor that Paul talks about. And he gives us two offensive weapons, the word and prayer. And on the surface, they look very weak. And the world looks at those weapons from the outside and they think they're weak. And oftentimes, you know what, as us, as Christians, we think they're weak. And we go looking for greater power sources and bigger and more powerful weapons and more exciting weapons to use. It reminded me of a story of in the mid-19th century. There were a group of college men who were going, they were in London, and they wanted to hear the famous pastor, Baptist pastor Charles Spurgeon. They wanted to hear him preach. And so they went very early because they knew there would be a large crowd and they'd be lucky to get a seat if they came late. And so they were the first ones there outside the door waiting. And Spurgeon opens up the door and welcomes them. Charles Spurgeon himself. And these students were amazed. And Spurgeon says, come on in. I would love to give you a tour and show you the heating plant of the church. These students weren't excited about going to a heating plant because it was the middle of July and they were burning up. But they didn't want to offend Mr. Spurgeon. And so they consented. And they start walking through the halls of this old church and then they get down below the church in the heating plant and they open up, Spurgeon opens up one of the doors and he says, look, here's the heating plant of the church and the students peek their head inside the door and they see 700 people on their knees praying before God, praying God's blessing on the service that was about to take place above them in the auditorium. I love that story. Spurgeon was saying, you want to see where power is. Real power. It's not in the eloquence of my preaching. It's not in how much of the Bible I know. You want to see the real cause behind what God is doing here. It's in the power of prayer. The power of His Word actually going forth in the world. And the question this morning is, do you believe that? Or do you instinctively think, oh, well, I guess I can pray. At least I can pray. Do you believe instinctively that our weapons that God has given us are weak and powerful? You see, it's hard to trust the weapons, isn't it? Hard to trust the weapons. Why does God give us weak weapons? Look at verse 2 again. So that Israel and so that you and I will not boast that anything the Lord does is His doing. 
so that we can look at the things God is doing and let's think about what God is doing in our church. The only explanation is that this is His doing and His alone. That's why God gives us weak, or what appears to be weak weapons. Remember all of the judges, the entire book and every judge that we look at, the whole Uh, The whole Bible points to the judge, the true judge. And so that means that ultimately this narrative of Gideon points us to Jesus. And it sounds exactly like Jesus, doesn't it? Because isn't this what we see in Jesus? He comes into the world to defeat sin and death and evil. And he doesn't come by bringing the sword. He doesn't come in power, but he actually comes in weakness And instead of bringing the sword, he actually takes the sword into himself. And he's beaten and he's mocked and he is nailed to a cross that's lifted up. And the cross was a symbol of shame. And it reminds me of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 26 and 28. Because in Jesus we see this so clearly, what Paul is saying. God chooses what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chooses what is weak to shame the strong. He chooses what is lowly and despised. The world looks at the cross of Christ and it looks weak to their eyes. It looks silly. But God chooses that in order to shame the strong. He uses what is low to bring salvation to the entire world. And if you're struggling this morning with maybe the assurance of God's commitment and love to you in the midst of your weakness, look no further than the cross of Jesus. Because it's at the cross of Christ, remember in Romans chapter 8, if God didn't spare His only Son for you, how will He not also graciously give you all things? You see what this means? is that the only way you can explain the cross is that God must really love you. The only way you can explain the cross is if to just to say, God must really love me and care for me and be committed to me. And it's true. Because He is. And so, does God help those who help themselves? I hope you know the answer to that by now, but it's an emphatic no. God helps helpless people. God helps broken people. God helps people come into Him empty-handed, ready to receive the good news of the gospel by grace alone. He invites you to come to Him now, this morning. So come to Jesus. He really is good. Let's pray. Father, thank You for bearing gently with us in the midst of weakness. Would You forgive us this morning for our pride? Forgive us for being glory thieves. Forgive us for trusting in ourselves rather than trusting in You. And Lord, this is a hard prayer to pray, but would You strip us from the things that we, the mighty men, so to speak, that we want to put our trust and confidence in. Strip us of those things so that we might trust in You more deeply and so that we might love You and grow more with you. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen.